So, wow. I can't think of a better time to host Ben Rhodes, and I can't think of a better place, so thank you so much for turning out tonight. So tonight we welcome Ben Rhodes, former presidential speechwriter and deputy national security advisor to Barack Obama. His political engagement began significantly, at least on the national scene, after he witnessed some of the events of September 11th. After working for former Indiana Congressman Lee Hamilton, Vice Chairman of the 9-11 Commission, Mr. Rhodes joined the Obama campaign. For eight years, he served in a variety of capacities within the Obama White House, and that is really the heart of the story that he tells in his memoir, The World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House. This is a thoughtful, well-told, and humble account about a historic presidency and about what it was like to work in, as part of a White House team during some pretty turbulent times, including the Arab Spring, normalization of relations with Cuba, the Iran deal, and the election of Donald Trump. So very, very, very different times. And what a wonderful, bittersweet pleasure it was to read this book, and I hope that you all do. So he appears tonight in conversation with Florangela Davila, the managing editor at the award-winning crosscut.com, which is a wonderful local news blog. They've won some Seattle, um, the Society of Professional Journalism um, kudos the other night, and that's a great way to find out what's happening in our community, and so I encourage you to go there. She's a managing editor now at Crosscut, but she's also a veteran Seattle journalist, and she worked for about 14 years for the Seattle Times as a staff reporter covering race, immigration, and features. And you've also heard her reporting on KNKX-FM and read her work in Seattle Magazine, and she's appeared on many stages around the city, including Forterra's annual Ampersand Live and at the local Crosscut Festival. With that, um, please welcome Ben Rhodes and Florenza Davila to the Seattle Public Library stage. There were some interesting things that happened in the news today. What would a typical day be like when you were in the White House? Unlike any day of the Trump administration. Um, uh, and actually, that is one of the strangest things to watch us. But a typical day for me would be uh, I would wake up um, and immediately I'd have an avalanche of emails that had come in overnight. And sometimes I'd be woken up in the middle of the night. The, the situation room, the White House situation room would call you and wake you up if some awful event happened around the world. Um, I'd get to work around 8. I would get the presidential daily briefing, which is the, the daily intelligence briefing that goes to the President of the United States. They would give it to me first, um, so uh, someone would come to my office and walk me through kind of the worst things that are happening in the world, um, because that's what uh, they present to you. And then I would go to a meeting with President Obama and his senior national security team to go over that presidential daily briefing. Um, then I would spend the next couple of hours generally helping prepare our spokespeople um, to answer questions in their briefing. So the White House Press Secretary, 
the State Department spokesperson, how are we responding to and commenting on events from around the world? Usually then my afternoons would be filled with meetings about developing policies. Um, and so what would be called the deputies committee, the people at the deputy level at the State Department, the National Security Council where I was, the Defense Department and others, would meet to discuss the Iran nuclear negotiations or the Paris Climate Agreement or uh, terrorism issues. Um, and we were making recommendations that would go up to the cabinet and ultimately, ultimately the president. And then I would tend to have meetings at the end of the day about whatever the upcoming priority for the president was, the next foreign trip he had, the next major speech he had to give, the next major policy we had to announce. Um, so that was the basic rhythm, but a crisis could easily blow all that up and you could spend the whole day focused on something that you didn't expect to be focused on. And um, obviously that, that is a, a marked contrast to the absence of any rhythm and routine that I see today. The, the book has been described as a sort of a coming of age story. The, this journey from sort of this idealistic person that you were, I think in your 20s, uh, and moving forward to sort of the reality of of what politics is like. Early on, you talk about um, hearing the convention speech and hoping that he would run for president and then quickly saying something that you were looking for a hero. And I'm wondering, tell us a little bit about the idealism and sort of the thought, what you thought you were going into and how quickly that changed. Well, one of the opportunities that I realized uh, I had in writing this book is that uh, most people who write these types of memoirs when they came into these jobs were already established public figures, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton or uh, Leon Panetta. Or, and I had the experience of being 29 years old when I went to work for Barack Obama. And so I was relatively anonymous. Um, and, and, and so I, I could bring the reader into what it felt like to go from that to how I emerged on the other end. In that particular passage, you know, what I was referring to is, you know, I kind of begin the book and my journey on 9-11. You know, where I was 24 years old, and, and, and I thought my life was going to move in a particular direction. Uh, I was interested in writing and publishing, and I was living in New York City. Um, and I watched those attacks. I watched the second plane hit the World Trade Center. I watched the first tower fall. Um, and I knew then that I wanted whatever I did to be about the next chapter. Um, how did we respond to that as a nation? Um, I actually went to an army recruiter who didn't know what to make of me. <laughs> I was a fiction writing graduate student, you know, teaching community college, and he kind of looked at me and couldn't really fit in, you know, where, uh, if he had made a better pitch, this all could have been very different. Um, um, but um, I went to Washington and got this job for Lee Hamilton, and I worked on some very important things like the 9-11 Commission, but what I meant on, about a hero is, 9-11 had kind of changed my life, and I think to my generation was this kind of transformational event. And I never felt like the politicians matched the moment. In other words, you know, I'm watching these huge historic events that are reshaping our world, and, and I didn't feel like anybody in politics was speaking a language that, that resonated with me or that I can connect with. I certainly didn't like the decisions that the Bush administration had made. And then I saw Barack Obama, who was different, and he was right about the Iraq war, and he spoke in ways that I understood, and he was trying to kind of stir in people a sense of common good and common humanity that 
kind of echoed my parents' heroes, the Kennedys, and, and I wanted to be a part of that. And I didn't know exactly where that would lead, and I didn't even know, I, I would not have said when I went to work for him, you know, I'm going to be the Deputy National Security Advisor. I just wanted to help this man get elected president. Part of your job early on was writing speeches. And I'm wondering, how do you go about capturing his voice? How do you, what is it that he says? How do you translate what he tells you into words that, the, that will be authentic to him? And how do you balance constantly calculating what he wants to say versus what you want him to say versus how you think the public is going to hear what is being said? Well, you learn pretty fast that it's not about what you want to say. Um, <laughs> Nobody's particularly interested in what the speechwriter wants to say. Um, I, first of all, it, it, it's not about writing a good speech. It's about writing a speech in the voice of the person delivering it. Um, you have to get inside their head and you have to know what their worldview is, how they talk, um, uh, what is going to bring out their best as an order. And so when I got this job as a speechwriter, I reread his books, and he was quite personal in his, in his particularly his first book, and, and his worldview is very accessible there. And then I went and I reread all of the interview. We had a, a file of every interview that he gave, and I would read those interviews to, to, to get his speaking mannerisms down. Um, and then he cared a lot about his speeches, and so if he was giving a big speech in particular, he would sit with you for an hour and literally walk you through the outline of what he wanted to say. Um, and, and the good thing about Barack Obama is, and the reason I think he was successful as a politician, is he was authentic. You know, the 2004 convention speech that drew me to politics and that inspired me was the exact same speech as his farewell address in 2017. And, and you can't say that about many American politicians, if any, that their, their message doesn't change. Um, and, and once we had that down right, you know, you're telling one story, and each speech is a part of this bigger story. Um, and I remember trying to explain this to somebody. I worked on the speech he gave in the 2008 campaign, the, the Yes We Can speech, um, that you know, became a music video and all this other stuff. And, and I remember telling someone, oh yeah, I worked on that speech, and they were almost like disappointed that, that there were any speechwriters who worked on the speech. And, and I said, look, it's not the speechwriter, because close your eyes, and, and I'm gonna say this with a lot of respect for the people I'm about to name, but to make a different point. I'm gonna close your eyes and picture like John Kerry or Hillary Clinton giving that speech. They couldn't. It's not the writing, it's that that was authentic coming from him. Um, and, and, and so that's what I had to capture. Um, and very quickly to, to answer your, the question I realized I didn't fully answer is, where I began to lose some idealism is, we caught this kind of lightning in the bottle in the 08 campaign, and it did feel like the country was coming together, and we were at this transformative moment. And you know, the first inclination I had <laughs> Um, was, was all the way back to the campaign that the, the more he succeeded, the more angry it seemed to make certain people in the United States. Um, the strangest thing about Barack Obama is what he could do that drove the opposition the most crazy is when he didn't fall on his face. And I think a lot of that had to do with race. I think when suddenly there's an African American who can play the role of President of the United States and play it better, frankly, than uh, most people who've had that office. That was very threatening to some people. That makes me think of talking about race and this 
there, I think it's deep in the book when you have the, make this revelation of so sort of the pressures and how the experiences that he had in trying to navigate who he was privately and who he was publicly. And I'm wondering, and you talk very openly, directly as a white man, sort of what you saw. And I was wondering if you could tell a little bit of a, of a story about in that moment of, of that. Yeah, well, uh, I, you know, I guess the story I would tell is, is um, I had this unusual experience of having to tell Barack Obama that Nelson Mandela had died. Um, you know, his, his hero. Um, and I kind of used that to tell a broader story about how we dealt with race in the White House. Um, the probably not, honestly not intentional pun um, I used is that racism was kind of like white noise in the White House because we all knew that it was there, but we didn't talk about it very much. Um, but it would come out in, in strange moments where Obama felt like he could be more candid. And I wanted, through this book, to let readers to hear what I heard, which is we'd be preparing for a press conference. Um, and what you do then is you kind of go through all the questions that he's going to get, and you practice answers. And so we practice, you know, well, Mr. President, do you think some of the opposition you face is because of race? And he'd say, yes, of course, next question. Um, and we knew he wasn't going to say that. It was kind of this weird catharsis he had, or we'd say, you know, what, what do you think, you know, needs to be done to reduce the tensions around the Black Lives Matter movement? And he'd say, well, cops should stop shooting unarmed black kids, you know. Um, and the reason, though, that he didn't um, often, although sometimes he did, say those things is because, you know, he'd had an experience early in the White House was more important than people, I think, realized at the time, which is in 2009, he got asked at a press conference about Henry Louis Gates, the Harvard professor, being arrested in his own home by a cop. And Obama said, well, that was stupid. And it sparked this like week-long you know, debate about whether Obama should have said that. And it kind of overwhelmed our agenda. We were trying to save the economy from a global depression. But people in cable television love to argue about, well, did Obama just defend the police? And why did he say that? And we had to have this kind of hokey and, in retrospect, kind of dumb beer summit right, where the cop came and had a beer with Henry Louis Gates and Obama, and it was kind of all uh, dispiriting. And I think what Obama realized then is if, let's say he was giving an interview about healthcare, if he uttered a word about race, no one would pay any attention to his healthcare plan, you know? Um, and and it, it, the, the conversation that ensued was not going to be particularly mature. And the experience of the Mandela speech that was interesting to me is that I had this strange job as a white man writing a eulogy that Barack Obama would give for Nelson Mandela in South Africa. And I knew I wasn't really up to this. Um, and so I kept asking him to you know, put more time into this, make it more personal. And when we flew on the flight to South Africa, I, I finally got through to him like, you know, you gotta, you gotta dig into this. There's only so far I can take this speech. And he rewrote huge chunks of it and he made it quite personal. And he talked about the experience of being an African-American and how Nelson Mandela made him want to be a better man in his own life. And he spoke in very personal terms about uh, the imperfections of Mandela and himself, but how you know, the example of Mandela led him, uh, you know, kind of woke him uh, into politics. And, and he gives us, I think, one of the better speeches of his presidency. And when we're flying home, the lead story in the United States was the fact that the attractive, blonde, 
Prime Minister of Denmark had taken a selfie with Obama. And here, it's a pretty historic moment. The first African-American president goes and eulogizes the most important African in the 20th century. Nobody covered that. The New York Times didn't write a single story about it. And they're all running in a loop on cable television, writing stories about this selfie, lacking the self-awareness that if a white president had taken a selfie with a blonde woman, I don't think anybody would have thought it was that interesting. Um, and, and, and so those are the kind of moments where you would realize, uh, you know, this is not as enlightened a, a culture as we sometimes lead ourselves to believe it is. There are such um, intimate moments in the book, these extraordinary moments where, where, you're, where you're seeing both Obama the politician and Obama the man, Obama the father, and the, the relationship that emerges. You, you start um, as somebody who was, I think, afraid to, to even say anything to him. And, and you emerge in, I think, one of the last interactions of the book is uh, some, one of you calls each other brother. That, I think that's how close you are. Um, What struck me too, or, or what you say um, you've observed, is how differently he was seen and regarded whenever you traveled overseas. Yeah, and you know, I tried to, I mean, part of the reason we became so close is I went on every one of these foreign trips and spent, you know, hundreds, thousands of hours, and, and I tried to take the reader into this in the book, and in between meetings, and car rides, and hotel rooms, and long flights, kind of just having this running conversation. And, and, and part of the reason is I was like the only guy that didn't leave. You know? um, I was there all eight years. And so I had that whole context that he, he could play back the tape and refer to something that happened. And, and then we'd start talking about books and movies. And, 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 and I think he enjoyed the ability to just be himself with somebody on his staff. Um, and that's how, um, that, that's very much how this like relationship um, you know, between us uh, evolved into this kind of uh, unlikely friendship. Um, now, the second part of your question uh, was, I just want to make sure I get it right. The sort of struck by how the rest of the world. The rest of the world, him. yeah, yeah. So, um, because you were, I mean, you were very calc. There was, a, I think it was the Japan trip where you're talking yeah. very deliberately about how you wanted him to be seen, where you wanted him to go, because yeah. you knew how that would connect to the. Public. Yeah, no, it's a really great question because. What was also very weird about working for Barack Obama is that the magic that, let's say, a lot of this country felt in 2008, like never went away around the world. Uh, in 2015 and 2016, if we went somewhere, it was a seismic event, you know? And not just because it was the US president, because it was Barack Obama. It was a minority. It was somebody from a disadvantaged background. It was someone who was a progressive. And you would go to another country, not just a Mandela funeral. If he gave a speech in that country, you know, you could go back there years later and people are quoting you his words, like speeches that barely registered here, you know. And he would try to do things and we would try to do things that U.S. presidents didn't typically do. Um, when we went to Rio in Brazil, he went to a favela where they're full of Afro-Brazilians who said that their own politicians didn't even go there, you know. Um, we did the same thing in Mumbai, and, and we, we always tried to uh, connect with the culture of the place that we were going. Um, and what was very unusual about this is that the world kind of embraced Barack Obama as this iconic American president, while at home there was this kind of toxic, trivial <laughs> politics that seemed to have created these antibodies to reject 
you know, Barack Obama as this iconic president. And I think some, many Americans probably didn't fully appreciate how much he was appreciated around the world and how much he was changing the world's view of America um, at the time. Um, and um, that discordance was always unusual. Um, to, to, to land in a country and watch him be received again and again and again as essentially this transformational figure, and then to land back in Washington and be right into the soup of whatever the the most kind of trivial partisan food fight was. It's a uh, it's extraordinarily it's a little surreal to read this book now. Um, surreal to write it, no, yeah. Um, because constantly, I remember everything, every news headline, just looking at the front page of the news and reading marked contrast. One thing that came up recently that struck me in your book, The Parallels, uh, was a story about Anthony Bourdain. Yeah, it is very, I mean, um, sometimes it's strange when you write something like this, you don't know what the small thing is, it might take on a totally different meaning. Um, and I had actually, you know, um, I become very interested in Anthony Bourdain, um, because, in part because as, as the toxic nature of you know, I, I traced in writing this how the politics kind of devolved. You know, it was Sarah Palin, and then it was the Tea Party, and then it was birtherism, and then it was Benghazi, and then by 14, 15, we're in full Trump mode already, even though even before Trump was running for president. It was, th that's what the Republican Party had become, and Fox News had become. And I started to get kind of turned off, you know, that element of our politics. In this Anthony Bourdain show, and I also had a newborn, so I couldn't sleep at night. Um, and so I watched all these Bourdain shows, because here's a guy who's just doing a very Obama thing, right? He's traveling places and meeting people and trying to respect their culture and learn about them. Um, and so I got very into the show, and I was like, I got to get Obama to do Anthony Bourdain. It became this kind of mission of mine. And then I also saw this episode that Anthony Bourdain did about Laos, a country that I knew next to nothing about which is the most heavily bombed country in the world, the history of the world. We dropped more bombs on Laos than Germany and Japan combined. And there are, there are literally 80 million unexploded ordnance, you know, little cluster munitions in Laos that are still killing people today. And I got interested in that and traveled to Laos to try to figure out ways that we could um, uh, find more money to clean up these bombs. Um, and ultimately this led to this uh, Anthony Bourdain-Obama dinner in Vietnam. Um, which was, you know, a pretty remarkable thing. These, you know, and, and I remember watching this and thinking like, all right, off the bucket list, you know. Um, but I remember going up to Bourdain after and he looked completely stunned that that had just happened. I mean, you could tell that this was a guy who was like, how did my life lead me to this noodle shop with Barack Obama? Um, and I remember I went up to him and I'm like, hey, um, you know, I saw your episode about Laos and now we're gonna get $100 million to clamp these bombs and that started with you, and he just looked at me like I was completely insane. <laughs> He's like, who is this guy who's talking to me? And um, it made it, it was so tragic to see him uh, die in the way that he did. Um, and and it, it made the, that good memory feel like even more distant uh, in the current moment, unfortunately. Given all the things that you've experienced, what stands out in terms of Oh my God! That same stunned being, that feeling of being stunned, that sort of how did I get here to what to where I am right now in this for particular me? moment? 
Very much, it was uh, when we went to the Vatican um, to, to tell the Vatican. So I'd been leading secret negotiations with the government of Cuba for a year and a half and with Alejandro Castro, who's Raul Castro's son. And we realized that we were gonna make a breakthrough. And we needed a third party to witness this agreement. Like a, to the lawyers in the room, we needed a kind of guarantor because we didn't necessarily trust each other completely. And so we enlisted the Vatican. But the Vatican didn't know how far we'd gone because the Vatican doesn't do any business over email, which in retrospect is really smart. Um, <laughs> and um, so they just thought they were hosting a meeting and trying to move things along with us. And so when we got there, we told them we were normalizing relations. And the cardinal, who's kind of the number two guy for the pope, uh, says, wait a second. Let's have separate meetings, the Cubans and the Americans, because he wanted to make sure that both sides were fully on board with this. And I remember I went in there, and he's like, you guys are really normalizing relations with Cuba, opening embassies? And, and I said, yes. And he looked at me, and he said, um, who are you? <laughs> uh, and I'm like, I'm Ben Rhodes. And he looked at me again, and he goes, does John Kerry know you're here? Uh, and, and I explained that like, I could do it in secret in a way that John Kerry could and everything. But then we went in this other room when you read these commitments out loud to, to transform this relationship. And all the Vatican people had uh, lived and worked in Latin America, because, you know, like Pope Francis. And they all had these tears in their eyes. And I remember the Cardinal made this very powerful speech about how this was bigger than the US and Cuba, that in this world that is moving in the wrong direction so many ways, that the ability for two adversaries to put the past behind them was gonna be inspirational people. And I just remember sitting there thinking, like, I can't believe I get to do this. That, and, and, and when people ask me what I miss about government, like only in the US, only representing your country can you even approach a moment like that where you can do something that can change the trajectory of individual lives, uh, of, of countries and their own stories. And so that to me, I walked out of there and I was kind of thinking like, well, who am I to have you know, just done that? But, um, but I also walked out of there feeling like, that was the right thing. And in, in government, you often rarely know if your decisions are right or wrong. But I knew that that was the right thing. We have five minutes of our conversation, so I'm gonna ask these questions quickly. Um, did you ever think about quitting? I did. Um, about six years in, I was just burned out. And um, I was, it was kind of a tough slog of a time, too. Um, you might remember that summer when there was like Ebola and uh, it was the height of ISIS's emergence and the Russians and Ukraine. And I just I was like, I don't think I can take two more years of this. And I tried to quit a couple of times and Obama kind of ignored me. Um, <laughs> and I realized that was a really good tactic. Um, and I, I actually described this amazing scene in his Oval Office where he, he, he was, I was talking about something and he was leaving. I'm like, where are you going? And he's like, I have to go up to Baltimore for the anniversary of the, the writing of the Star Spangled Banner kind of thing you do when you're president. And I said, I, I just kind of said by way of joking, I've always been more of an America the Beautiful guy, you know? And he said, only if it's the Ray Charles version. Um, and I was like, yeah, you know, that, that's great. And, I, and he's like, you know, that, and I told him the story about how that song was particularly important to me, that Ray Charles version after 9-11. And he's like, you know, that should be the national anthem. We should make the Ray Charles America the Beautiful the national anthem. <laughs> he's like, it's got everything. It's got race and patriotism and struggle and overcoming. and um, and I'm sitting here thinking, like, there's no way I'm leaving this job. I'm sitting here talking to Barack Obama about, 
you know, by Ray Charles, America, the beautiful, the national anthem. Uh, so I was hooked. You are, you are married and you have two daughters and we were talking about this earlier. And I'm just wondering, uh, how old is your oldest? She's three and a half. Um, how do you explain or does she know who Barack Obama is and how will you explain who Donald Trump is? So nobody's ever asked me that before. Um, so my daughter, if, if those of you know the photograph of Obama lying on the floor of the Oval Office holding a little girl up in an elephant costume. Um, that's my daughter. Um, so uh, she became this kind of internet celebrity. Um, uh, now she knows Obama because there's pictures of her and Obama in our house and she's met him a number of times. And um, actually, like the last time I was on a trip with Obama, FaceTiming with her, he you know, goes over my shoulder and he's like, hey, it's Obama, you know? Um, <laughs> and so she just, knows him and calls him Obama. She has no idea that he was the president or what that means. For a while, we'd drive past the White House and she'd be like, daddy's work, daddy's work. And I'd explain I didn't work there anymore. Um, so she doesn't know who Trump is. She's too young to know. Um, I, I think that um, I would feel obligated in explaining to her who Donald Trump is. Um, if any other Republican, if Jeb Bush was president or Marco Rubio, I would explain this is the president and, and this is what the president does in our country. Um, but just because she might consume the things that Donald Trump says, I think I would have to explain to him that I don't think he's a good man and that um, the things, you know, because I wouldn't want him, her to see him insulting somebody on television and think that just because he's president, that means that that's the right thing to do. You know, um, and so it's an awful thing to have to think about, but um, I think I'd have to provide that context of, of explaining to her that he's not a nice man. You know, I'd probably have to do, he's the president and that's very important in our country, but, but he's also not a very nice man. He doesn't treat other people um, nicely and with uh, the way you would want to be treated. Um, because I think it's, one of the things that's most troubling to me is in, you know, with kids are very impressionable and the president is incredibly powerful. And I think of the example that Obama set for kids, and I'm trying to think of like what kids from, more impressionable from like kind of seven to 15, what they're consuming from Trump on Twitter and on television, and how that is the example that's setting. It's an upsetting thing to think about. My last question before I turn it over, which is um, given how, I, I talked to a lot of people about tonight and what they wanted to know. And repeatedly, everybody said, ask him how you keep hopeful. And I'm wondering, given everything that you witnessed, do you think you will ever be, have that hope? Oh, yes. Um, so, and I end the book on this note. I, I thought a lot about the last year and a half, as you might imagine, the meaning of a presidential legacy. Um, because everybody's always asking me, you know, don't you feel so sad that your legacy is being dismantled? Um, but that presupposes that a legacy is kind of a scorecard, you know, uh, the policy achievements and diplomatic achievements. But then I thought about it, and you know, my hero uh, growing up in politics, you know, obviously before my time, but was like John F. Kennedy. Um, even I felt compelled to get into politics because of John F. Kennedy and inspired by his words and watched his speeches. And when I went to work for Obama, I went and reread all the Kennedy speeches, both Kennedy brothers. 
I couldn't name 10 legislative accomplishments of John F. Kennedy. Um, even foreign policy, you know, he managed the Cuban Missile Crisis well, the Peace Corps, but I couldn't name, you know, nine Iran deals that John F. Kennedy had. Um, it's the impact he had on people, on people, the inspiration he gave um, that was still impacting me uh, decades later. And then I think about Obama and I think about all those billions of people in the United States and around the world who saw him and heard his speeches and watched him be decent and dignified. How did that impact them and what are they gonna do? A lot of them are running for office um, in this cycle. We've got more young people and, and people of color and women running for office and, and so his legacy is a living thing. It didn't end on, on January 20, uh, 2017. And I believe that in 10 years and 20 years and 30 years, America is going to look a lot more like Barack Obama than Donald Trump. Um, and that gets me up. Okay, I'm gonna repeat that question. One, well, one, um, how did you not fall in love with Barack Obama? And, and I can answer the other ones pretty quickly. Um, you know, you, you have to be careful to not, these are, these are human beings and um, you actually cannot be the best staffer that you can be if you are in love because you have to, you have to disagree sometimes and push back. But, you know, I unabashedly admired him. And, you know, when I was writing this book, some people would give me the advice, like, well, you know, Stephanopoulos' book did really well because he punched Clinton in the face, you know. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to do that. And they're like, oh, because you're pulling your punches? And I'm like, no, because I actually admire Barack Obama. Like I, but I, I try to make him three-dimensional, and he gets irritated in the book. And he, but he is a good man. And, 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 and so I think there's a way to, to feel that without being blinded. Um, uh, I never saw Idiocracy. Um, uh, I, I'll check it out. Um, Michelle Obama um, un, is not going to run for president, I'm sorry. Um, part of what we love about her is she's a real normal person and no, <laughs> someone like that is probably not uh, wanting to spend two eight-year uh, terms in the White House. Um, and your second one... Anger translator. Anger, you know, he did, I did want to answer that because he did like that. And it wasn't unlike kind of what I was saying about the press conference preparation. Like, he did, he was very contained. Um, kind of the opposite of what we have now. And, and he, he got the joke, and, and frankly, it was sometimes, he used to say sometimes he'd have Bullworth rants with us. They're like, what would he do if he won a full Bullworth? Um, I don't know if those of you <laughs> saw that movie with Warren Beatty. Um, so yes, that, he, he, he liked that. The lady in red. Did President Obama have any regrets? Yeah, no, he definitely did. Um, the, you know, the, the interesting thing is, you know, when that form of question comes, it's hard to say, people tend to think it, it would be, if I, I wish I made X decision and Y would have happened, um, uh, because, but, but on foreign policy in particular, like, you don't know. You just, you, you regret how things turned out in certain places. Um, obviously, the Middle East, Egypt, Syria, the, the inability to make peace between Israelis and Palestinians, we regret those outcomes. It's always hard to identify one thing and say, well, if it only we'd done that, this would have turned out differently. Um, I think that the other thing is that, and, and, and I don't know that he said this to me, so I, this is my interpretation, I wanna be very clear, but you know, we had this majority at the beginning 
where we could do a lot. You know, we could pass a, you know, a, a trillion dollar stimulus to save the economy and the healthcare law and um, uh, Wall Street reform. And, um, and we knew we weren't gonna keep that big of a majority, but you know, you take something like immigration reform. We thought we could get to that. You know, we thought that it would be tough to do that as we're doing all those other things, right? And, and, but we, we're gonna have six more years and inevitably we can get immigration reform done. We tried mightily to do it, but we never had democratic control of both houses and that was never gonna happen without it. And so one of the things I think you know, he does regret and I do is that you just don't know what you're not gonna be able to do. And if we could go back to 2009 and know the type of opposition we were gonna face and the, you know, the things that come at us, uh, you, might, you would definitely do things differently. You know? Um, but it's hard, uh, you know, it's hard to anticipate that in that moment. Um, so I think there might be regret associated with the fact that, man, if we had known that, like, the Republicans were never going to work with us, you know, the last two, the one simple way of answering this is, look at him the last two years. By then, he figured it out. And he was kind of unbound, right, um, in, in, in gay marriage and climate change and Cuba and, and all kinds of things. He found a freedom uh, in recognizing that that you know actually these people are not going to work with me, um, but I, I think that if we'd known that earlier, I, I've always wondered whether our our we might have done things differently those first two years. So the yeah. question is, how do we? Did you hear a question? Yeah. Well, let me let me yeah yeah. No, well, yeah, let's, yeah, let's yeah. just let Ben let me try talk to answer. because um, we're on a really tight schedule. So, so the, the, the reality is quickly that um, some of these things, I mean, I'll offer you my view, right, which is different, which is that some of the things that you mentioned, Obama couldn't change by himself. We, wait, wait, let, me, let me answer the question. He tried to close Guantanamo Bay for eight years. He can't close it. The Republic, wait a second, hear me out. The Republicans passed laws, laws, preventing the transfer of any detainee out of Guantanamo to the United States. You cannot close the facility if you have nowhere to put the people. President Obama would, if he could, reform our criminal justice system to address those inequities. Republicans blocked it. What Donald Trump did that was so cynical is after eight years of obstructionism, he comes in and says, why didn't Obama fix those things? It wasn't because of Obama. It was because of the Republicans in Congress. And, 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 and what the Republicans did that was so cynical is they knew that if they made the appearance of dysfunction and then told their people it was Obama's fault, that there were some people who would go for that and vote for Donald Trump, and here we are. And let me tell you, all those things that you mentioned are not going to happen under Donald Trump. He wants to put more people in Guantanamo. He, wants, he, he has reversed any effort we made to address inequities in the sentencing system. So I would say that the, basically a highly cynical strategy um, employed by the Republicans convinced enough people to, uh, to, to mortgage their own futures by supporting Donald Trump. Did, did, did Obama read the book and what did he think of it? My book? Yeah, um, your book. He did read it, um, and uh, he liked it. He thought it, it dealt with, um, he, well, he was a little bitter because he's writing his own book, and he's moving much slower. <laughs> and so he said to me, 
I'm jealous because, you know, I have to write the whole story, and you only had to do farm policy. So um, <laughs> he liked it, but he's, uh, he's actually writing his own book. There's no writer helping him, um, and uh, he's taking a long time, but it'll be a very good book. The man in the back. The question is, have you seen anybody in the horizon that so, will make you believe? So, I haven't, but um, I, you know, a lot of people didn't see Barack Obama coming. And, um, you know, one of the things that I'm excited about, some people don't like the fact that there's going to be like 15 or 20 Democrats running for president. I love that, right? Because, you know, and I want there to be Outsiders. I don't want it to just be a bunch of senators. Like I, I want to see if somebody can find a message that meets the moment that can get people to turn out here. And 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 these elections have become about turning out more of our people. You know, the the Obama coalition. The problem we had is they didn't vote for, for people other than Obama. Like young people voted in lesser numbers. African Americans voted in lesser numbers. You need to inspire a critical mass of people to win elections. And whoever can emerge from that field, I believe can do that, and it can surprise you. I didn't even know, like probably everybody in this room, this candidate in, in New York who beat Joe Crowley. I, I, she's incredible. I mean, I, you know, I watched, I went back, I watched her videos, I learned about her story, I'm like, well, I'm not saying she's gonna be president, frankly, she's 28, she can't be, but it, it goes to show that if somebody, it's a good message, and, and, and so if somebody can, can find that, that, that nerve, that tap that vein, um, uh, you know, I, I, I want to be surprised by it. And, and so I don't want to list a bunch of names here, but I do think, like, if you look, the one thing I'll say is if you look at Democrats, we tend to win with outsiders, like Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, even Jimmy Carter. When it was Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, Al Gore, Walter Mondale, like, we tend to not do better. And so, and I love Joe Biden, and, and if he runs, obviously, I take that very seriously, but, like, I'd like to see somebody kind of come from the outside and, and find that, that opening. Last question. Oh, man. <laughs> so the question is, we miss how he speaks, and what were some of the favorite, your favorite lines, your favorite things that you've heard him say? Uh, and if you could do it in his voice. Yeah. So I, 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 I'll start with the, the softer, the lighter angle, and then end on the more serious one. Um, I can't mimic his speech pattern. What we did do a lot of as speechwriters is he had these verbal tics um, that we would make fun of him about. And so he had one which was, he get asked a question and he found like an absurdity to the fact of how much you repeat yourself in politics. And so he would always say, if he got asked something, he'd say, well, look what I have said. And he, I don't know how many times, so we'd always say, look what I have said. Or he would always reject notions. Uh, he would always say, well, the notion that X is true, I reject that notion, right? And so one of the things that we did as speechwriters is we, we late at the end of the administration, we had a giant poster board, and we had all of these notions. Um, there were direct quotes of all the notions that Barack Obama had rejected. And it was pretty funny, because some of the notions were very important, like I reject the notion that we are divided as a people. And then some of them were very, very specific. Like, I reject the notion, you know, that I have to eat this for breakfast or something, you know? Um, so that, that's how we would make fun of him. I think in terms of things that he said and the way he said them, I, I, there's obviously a million. I'll focus on one, which is, I remember um, when there was a shooting um, in Charleston. Uh, the white supremacist went into that church and shot 
and killed eight, eight people. At the beginning of that week, Obama was so frustrated and angry at the gun violence angle of this um, that he told us that he didn't even, he was out of words. He couldn't give another speech. Like he was going to go, obviously, to the memorial service. He thought maybe he'd just attend the memorial service because what is there left to say? And then I remember that he was obviously going to speak, and, and the speechwriter did a draft. It wasn't me. It was a different speechwriter. And Obama took it, and he, he just rewrote it. And, and it was one of, and if you're a speechwriter, the best thing that can happen is if he rewrites it, because it's going to be a much better speech. But everybody's going to think that you're the one who worked on it, you know? But he, he, it was very raw. And he, if you go back and, and obviously I'm going to get to the end of the speech, which everybody remembers, but if you read the speech, it's very visceral language about race and and criminal justice and guns and the Confederacy. I mean, he, it's all in there. Um, and I remember um, the, uh, the speechwriter who was traveling with him, he's a really good friend of mine, and he emailed me on the way and he's like, hey, this is crazy, but like Obama said, you know, he's reframed the whole speech around the concept of grace. And, and he, Obama said like, yeah, maybe I'll sing Amazing Grace. Um, and I was like, oh, that's nuts. He's never gonna do that. Um, and so then I remember I'm watching this in my office, and it was like an afternoon, I was tired, and I can tell as he's delivering it, like this is a, this is a really powerful moment. It's a sad moment, obviously, because the lies that were lost, but uh, I could tell, in, and often in African-American churches, he really, you know, he gets in a rhythm with the audience, and he got to this point where I saw him say Amazing Grace, and he kind of paused for like a little, you know, it was a long pause, I remember Stephen thinking, like, oh, my God, he's actually going to sing. I could tell before he did, like, because I, you know, I had been tipped off, and I saw him kind of thinking. And then he launches into this. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I Was, I just remember sitting at my desk and just sobbing because there was a catharsis about that that was so powerful. And in politics, rarely do you get a moment that is totally surprising. And it spoke to the tragedy of those people, but it spoke to like everything, the history of race in this country, the, 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 the current divisions in the country. Like It was all coming out, but in this kind of beautiful moment where even the people in that congregation who knew those people were, were kind of lifted up. Um, and the, the story I'll end on that was equally powerful in a way is I was in his office a couple days later, 
and I kind of walk in for a meeting, and we're all standing there, and usually you walk in, and you're standing there, and, you know, you stand until he sits down. And he didn't get up from his desk and come sit down, so we're all just kind of standing there. It's like three of us, and he was reading a letter, and he used to always like to read letters that were sent to him. And he started reading aloud from this letter, and the letter said, Dear Mr. President, my whole life I have hated people because of the color of their skin. And I now realize that that was wrong, and that what happened to those eight people in that church was wrong. And I want to thank you for that, and for all that you're trying to do to help people. And it was like, if this one person can change, it felt like, you know, it's possible, right? Um, and that was the power of, of words. Words, words matter. Um, and, and that was one of the, the, the real takeaways to me, again, of the Obama presidency. The, the words matter and can have connections to people and promote changes in people that, that are unexpected. All, all of that is beautifully captured in a book that, that you will love. Um, Thank you very much, Ben Rhodes. Thanks so much, guys. I really appreciate it.